My name's Nick Fike. I'm the uh, editor of The Monthly and I'll be hosting this session today, which is titled Electric Future Now. And with floods soaking the East Coast and petrol at over $2 a litre and the war in Ukraine affecting energy systems around the world, I think it's a timely moment to be having this conversation. First, I'd like to acknowledge that uh, WOMAD's held on the traditional lands of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains and we pay our respects to their elders past and present and uh, may they soon have a con constitutionally enshrined voice to parliament and a greater say in the policies that, that affect their community. And thanks to the Australia Institute for presenting today's program of events. I'd like to invite Noah Schultz-Bayard, South Australian Director of the Australia Institute, to make a short address. Noah. Thank you, Nick, and thanks to all of you for coming along today for what should be a fantastic couple of sessions at the Planet Talks. My name's Noah Schultz-Bayard. I'm the SA Director at the Australia Institute. The Australia Institute is an independent think tank that's primarily based in Canberra, but three years ago we were lucky enough to be able to set up an office here in South Australia. As a think tank, we think that we're in the business of changing people's minds and changing minds for the better. Uh, we do that through evidence-based research that we then take into the public sphere and engage in debate uh, in politics in some of the key areas of our time around climate change, government transparency and accountability. And we do that because we believe that you have to be in the debate to win the debate. Uh, and that's why we're so pleased to be able to be here this year with Madeleine, uh, partnering with the Planet Talks on today's fantastic sessions. Uh, I want to get straight into the session, so I'll be very brief and just let you know that all of our research, all of our analysis is available at our website, australiainstitute.org.au, which is where you can also go to donate if you want to support our ongoing work. Uh, but mainly, I just want to say thank you for coming along. I can't wait to get into the first session with our own chief economist, Richard Dennis, to find out more about what a proactive approach we can take to climate. And if you want to hear more about the Australia Institute or discuss our work, come find me after the session. I'll be keen to talk through it with all of you. All right, well, thank you and enjoy the day. Thanks, Noah. We should acknowledge the support of the Bob Hawke Prime Ministerial Centre for this event too. They've been a valued partner of the Planet Talks for many years. And I'd also like to quickly mention that um, this Planet Talks stage is powered by biodiesel. Uh, it's an environmentally safe fuel source produced in Australia um, from plant biomass, vegetable oils and waste, treated waste. Um, so it's nice to know that we're not contributing to the problem. So let me introduce our panellists today, Renata Egan next to me, Andrew Blakers in the middle and Richard Dennis on the end. Renata Egan, Professor Renata Egan, leads the UNSW activity in the Australian Centre for Advanced Photovoltaics. She's led manufacturing and industrial energy technology development in Australia, China and Germany as an innovator, an entrepreneur and an academic. Renata is also co-founder of Sol Analytics, Australia's largest independent energy monitoring provider. She's a former managing director of SunTech R&D Australia and now participates in a number of national and international boards and review committees across the energy sector, as well as representing Australia on the executive committee of the IEA PV Power Systems Program. Please welcome Renata.
Andrew Blakers in the middle is Professor of Engineering at the ANU, where he founded the Solar PV Research Group in 1991. In the 80s and 90s, he was responsible for the design and fabrication of silicon solar cells, which registered world record efficiencies of up to 22%. He was instrumental in the founding of the Australian Solar Institute, which was the forerunner of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. He was the co-inventor of sliver solar, solar cell technology and also the co-inventor of the PERC silicon solar cell, which has 90% of the global solar market and cumulative module sales of $110 billion. Please welcome Andrew Bakers. And finally, Dr. Richard Dennis is the Chief Economist and former Executive Director of the Australia Institute. He's an economist, author and public policy commentator and a former Associate Professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. Uh, Richard writes regularly for The Guardian and for The Monthly and has written eight books including Affluenza with Clive Hamilton, Econobabble, Curing Affluenza and Dead Right. And his new book is Big, The Role of the State in the modern economy. Please welcome Richard and our, our guests. So reducing our emissions by making everything electric won't just benefit the climate. In the long run, electrifying everything is cheaper, it's more efficient, and as our panellists will outline, we can get to 80% emissions reductions by 2035, that's 80%, without any new technology at all. So what are we waiting for? So this is the question that we're here to discuss today and unpack. Uh, Andrew, you think Australia can easily reach this 80% target mainly by electrifying everything and, and running on renewables. So just to open up the conversation, what are the key components of such a shift in technology terms? So on, on a macro level, what does this electrified future look like in Australia? Well, it's pretty much going down the path we're going now. So the first thing is to make sure that you get rid of coal and gas from the electricity system. That means solar, a lot more solar and wind. Currently, we're sitting at about 35% renewables in the electricity system. We'll be at 50% in 2025, around 80 or 90% in 2030, just on status quo. Having got rid of the um, coal and gas out of the electricity system, then we uh, can use that clean electricity to decarbonise transport through electric vehicles and decarbonise heating through heat pumps and decarbonise industry through um, high temperature electric furnaces. All of this is off the shelf technology, it's just a matter of pushing it harder. Uh, it's already going quite fast but it can go faster again and uh, it really is turning out to be remarkably easy. Australia is the global pathfinder, despite the headwinds from Canberra, um, primarily because the compelling economics of solar and wind are just pushing that into the market. And in sunny South Australia, it is the global leading jurisdiction with something like three quarters of its electricity now from um, solar and wind and uh, that'll head up to above 100% once the new Energy, energy Connect um, uh, power line is, is built through to Wagga. So it's got um, uh, tremendous opportunities at the macro level and the question is how you implement that at the individual level and perhaps Renata would talk about that. Am I working? Good, thank you. Um, so yeah, I've, I was asked to talk a little bit about my personal journey in, in um, electrifying everything. 
Uh, we started um, about a year ago with an electric vehicle. I already had solar on the roof. In fact, I put solar on the roof in 2008 when it cost $10,000 to put a one kilowatt system on. <laughs> and now you could put a 10 kilowatt system on for $10,000. Uh, but I put my one kilowatt on then because I was, you know, wanted to engage and understand how, how my home would work with solar. And that pro provided about 30% of our electricity needs. And about a year ago, <coughs> we bought an electric vehicle, uh, um, and a, an SUV format that sort of worked for our family. Uh, it's around $45,000, so you know, not cheap, but not sort of out of the ballpark either. Uh, we, bought, we put the order down on the Monday, and we picked the car up on the Friday, and took it away on the Saturday for a 2,000-kilometer road trip. So we literally hit the road. With our, um, with our electric vehicle and drove uh, over the course of a week 2,000 kilometres, stopping every, because it's only got a 250 kilometre range, we stopped every 200 kilometres or so to charge the car, took about half an hour, so we'd explore the town or have a cup of coffee. Fabulous road trip. We had two bikes in the back, a surfboard on the roof and all the luggage we needed for uh, a week away, so it certainly didn't spoil our weekend. Um, we then went uh, ahead like a, a few months later and put an extra five kilowatts of solar on the roof and a battery, a home battery. So now we are, for 80% of the year, we're completely energy independent. And it's been a really great reinforcing experience for how possible it is. And we've got the data that shows us what we're doing and how best to use it. And we, we think a little bit more about when we're going to charge the car and how we're going to operate. But it's, we're, we're literally energy independent for most of the year. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems so simple when you put it like this. You know, the technology's here. The people are willing. Uh, Australia's the perfect place to do it in, in the sense that we have all of this room. Uh, why, why, and yet it's, it's actually hard to be optimistic in some respects. Um, Richard, why aren't we further down the road? Um, because the people we elect determine the problems we solve. Um, it, 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 took, it took Australia longer to roll out the vaccine for COVID-19 than it took the world's scientific community to invent it. Right? It's so don't get me wrong, like, the, the world owes an enormous favour to, to scientists like these to, you know, who've given us the technology. But having it is different from installing it and using it. So, yeah, don't get me wrong, we can very rapidly transform our economy. But that doesn't mean we will. Whether we do or not is actually a democratic question. Now, of course, we can only pursue technologies that scientists have actually invented for us. They are currently on the menu of choice available to us. But like right now, we as taxpayers in Australia are building a billion-dollar gas-fired power station in Curry Curry in New South Wales. Now, I agree with Andrew 100%. Step one, phase out the coal and gas. But just to be crystal clear, we're building a new one. We're not, we're not he rushing headlong to what we could have. We're actually, we, collectively, our representatives in our parliament are spending our money to actually grab on to the past. The top-selling car in Australia uh, is, is an enormous Hilux twin cab. 
the top selling car in the UK is the Tesla 3. Not the top selling electric car in the UK, the top selling car. They think small electric cars are good, we think enormous four wheel drives are good, and guess what, there's enormous tax breaks for those big four wheel drives. So of course technology is everything in terms of what we can do, but politics is everything in what we will do. So true. Um, and I guess I also want to tease out some of the other the advantages that are kind of timely, the ones that are affecting us all now. So not all of us here, but along the East Coast, you know, these floods have destroyed uh, power infrastructure and you have people without power uh, entirely reliant on you know, coal-fired power plants still. Um, Andrew, talk, us, talk to us about uh, the implications of restructuring the grid in terms of how, assuming we had the political will to do this, and in six months' time we have a new government, what is the kind of change, what are the kind of changes to a grid that would help affect change in terms of the management of the power system. Okay, I'd like to talk about a very important co-benefit of moving very strongly to solar and wind. Every country in the world has got solar or wind. Very few countries have got large uh, deposits of fossil fuels. So solar and wind is a hugely democratic form of energy. And energy and food are two of the really top things that make a society actually function. So I think German energy planners are bitterly regretting that they didn't go much more strongly into solar and wind five years ago, and if they had, they could have turned off Russian gas tomorrow. Um, this is at the large. Um, in terms of Australia, we've been through the worst fires on record. These could be the worst floods on record. We're going into the highest petrol prices on record. Uh, we've just been through a pandemic. All of these are security threats which um, can disrupt energy supply. And guess what? If we have a 90%, 100% solar wind-based electricity system, and we've all got electric vehicles, and we've all got electric heat pumps to heat our houses and cool our houses and heat our water, and if we run our industry off electric furnaces, then we don't it doesn't affect us if there's massive um, disruption to, to trade. And if you're in Ukraine and you have all these things, then you are much more secure when somebody decides to invade you. There's a, just a, this enormous co-benefit that you have both the mitigation of climate change and the mitigation of enormous security risks. Uh, Renata, how is you, you've got a battery? Yes, yes. Yeah, well, I, thanks, Nick. We um we were talking earlier. Um, we had that, that lived experience on the micro scale just last week. So Sydney, with its wild, wet weather last week, um, power lines went down around the corner from us. A tree went down, took out four telegraph poles. Fortunately, nobody, nobody, and nothing else was hurt. But these poles went down, so we were without power for 24 hours. But we had one of these a relatively new battery installed in May last year that allowed that went into what's known as island mode. So the, the lights went out, and then 30 seconds later, the, the lights came back on again. And our little battery system—it's only little—and uh, our solar array on a cloudy day was enough to keep the house 
operating with two of us working from home throughout the entire day and into the early evening before the, before the battery had run out. But that was enough to keep everything operating. So I, I, and I had a counter example uh, of the, um, the parents-in-law who have a very expensive Tesla battery and when the grid went down, that all went down as well, not because of the battery's fault, but because the way the system is rigged up, as in they, you're required with certain batteries and in certain contracts to feed your power back into the grid. So if the grid goes down, as in the, the poles and wires, then this battery is useless. I thought, this is completely crazy. Not to mention the fact that you know when we each generate uh, energy from our own solar panels, we're selling it back to the power companies for six cents and we're paying 20 cents for it. I mean, so I completely, this is, this mm -hmm. is the system, you know, we want a decentralised system, but, but Richard, why is, why, is the, um, why is the market rigged? <laughs> um, because the people winning from it are very, very happy with it. Um, I mean, Andrew's spot on about the potential for uh, not just reducing greenhouse gas emissions and making the planet safe from climate change, but from making the planet safe from uh, energy-fueled tyrants. But let's be clear, Australia is the third largest exporter, exporter of fossil fuels in the world. Saudi Arabia, Russia, Australia. So everything Andrew is saying about how countries can benefit from weaning themselves off fossil fuels is 100% correct. But just to be crystal clear, the Australian Energy Minister, Angus Taylor, said just last week how important it is to massively expand Australian gas production so that we can export more gas to the world, and I'm not making this up, to help tackle climate change. Right, so again, you know, our representatives in our parliament are spending our money on a gas-fuelled recovery, a gas-fired recovery, where here we are looking at what's happening in the, with the floods uh, in the north of New South Wales, the floods in Queensland, the IPCC report out, uh, people literally using energy as a weapon in Europe, and our plan, the plan made on our behalf by our elected representatives, is that we should actually double down into this. So again, there's a difference between what does the technology make available and what is it we should do? And why is the market rigged? Uh, it's not rigged. It's working just the way powerful people want it to. So Saul Griffith recently wrote um, a book called The Big Switch, and I think there was a version that he wrote for the American market where he said that um, making this transformation, like transforming the grid in a way that would be able to do the sorts of things that we all, you know, to get us to 80% reductions by 2035, would cost uh, roughly, I can't remember the exact figures, but it was like three or four years of uh, the sorts of subsidies that we're currently putting into fossil fuels would actually fund this sort of shift. Um, it's, um, you know, it's a pretty damning state of affairs, but... Oh, sorry. The thing to understand is that the big numbers are designed to scare you. They're cheap. Australia's national income is $2 trillion per annum. $2,000 billion per year is what we spend on stuff. If we spend $30 or $40 billion electrifying everything, this is cheap. 
Only an economist can tell you this, but you know, 30 billion is not a lot of money. It's, it's, it's like we're going to waste three times that on, on defence projects that don't work. And, and just to be clear, that's how good it is to live in a country as rich as Australia. Like, we can actually waste that much stuff on kit that doesn't work, and still, you know, everything else is fine. So we've been terrified for decades that we might spend too much on transitioning away for fossil fuels, when no one cares a jot if we waste tens of billions of dollars on defence projects that don't even work. Yeah. So I just wanted to add to that because the um, biggest investment in energy over the last three, four, five years has been by you and me um, with our rooftop solar, our batteries, uh, our electric vehicles. We're the ones investing, and it's billions. We have, you know, it's $10 billion a year, and it's you and me. It's not at the top end of town who are making those investments. And are there... Are there other tech, are there technological limitations that would prevent uh, the whole world going this way? In the sense that, are we going to run out of um, lithium for batteries? Are we going to run? What can, can you talk us through some of those aspects, Andrew, just to assure us that if you did make these political decisions, that you wouldn't get stuck uh, in the, the sort of the nightmare scenario that conservative politicians will put out there? That you know, when the wind stops and blah 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 mm -hmm. blah as if batteries don't exist, you know. Talk, us about, talk to us about technological limitations or not. In a nutshell, there are no impediments to a 100% renewable energy system. The, um, the, the backbone is the silicon solar cell. Uh, silicon is the second most abundant element in the Earth's crust. Rock is basically silicon dioxide plus impurities. Um, for storage, um, it's a combination of batteries and pumped hydro. And pumped hydro stores about 100 or 1,000 times more energy than batteries. And the working fluid is water. Um, Australia has 4,000 off-river pumped hydro sites. We need about 20 to support a 100% renewable energy system. There are no ecological, social, uh, resource um, impediments to going to 100% rather quickly. Uh, I'd also like to just add that uh, despite the headwinds from Canberra, as I said before, Australia is the global pathfinder. We have more solar per person than any other country in the world. We have, we're a top 10 wind uh, country and we are a top one or two changes each year in terms of new solar and wind per person per year. So last year the Netherlands just pipped us. This year I'm hoping that we will have um, been back to number one. I'll get that data quite soon. This is with headwinds. So if there is a change in government or a change in government policy so that the wind is behind us, then we will go literally twice as fast and the number one requirement of the federal government which has been the number one impediment to really large-scale solar and wind has been the urgent need to get more transmission built to bring the new solar and wind power into the cities at the moment the high voltage transmission goes to the coal power stations on coal fields that's not where the good solar and wind is so we need to just build this transmission, which adds, which is only about 5 or 10% of the total cost of a renewable energy system in order to 
liberate the private sector to just build solar and wind, more and more and more of it at twice the rate we're doing now and get the whole job done by 2035. So, yeah, that's... <laughs> Andrew, you've answered my next question very nicely. Um, but I wanted to say, if, if, if you had the ear of the new minister for energy, uh, I'm not going to make any predictions about election results. If there was a new minister for energy after the next election, Renata and Richard in turn, and, and Andrew, you might have something more to add, what, what would you be saying to, what would you be advising to the new minister in terms of making this shift more viable or, or efficient? Um, so I think we need, uh, we need to remove any barriers um, and we need to create some, uh, the environment for, that encourages investment. And I, I think the investment would go ahead then because it actually makes financial sense uh, at, the, at the domestic level, at the industrial level and at the state government level. And some removing, uh, putting in electric vehicle infrastructure would give the people the confidence that they are currently, that gives them some reservations about investing in a vehicle. Um, in, investing in the, the grid infrastructure to move the electricity about. Uh, uh, investing in communications and um, uh, public awareness, because this transition is going to happen as quickly as Andrew describes, and people are not really, they've been told a different story for so long, and, and everybody always gets surprised by what happens and how quickly it's happening. Uh, so, yeah, that sort of investment and awareness piece. Yeah. What about you, Richard? Well, the first thing to understand is just actually how important it is who the next energy minister is. Because they and their cabinet make fundamentally important decisions that literally determine the shape of our energy system for decades to come. So whether the next energy minister is from the Labor Party or the Liberal Party really matters. Whether they have to negotiate with Pauline Hanson in the Senate or the Greens really matters. Our voices really matter when it comes to selecting the people who get to make arbitrary decisions with decadal consequences. So step one, let's take the premise of the question very seriously. Who that is is not abstract. That's up to us. What should they do? Step one, stop spending $10 billion a year subsidising fossil fuels. Step two, <laughs> step two, don't waste money spending a billion dollars building a new gas-fired power station. It's the last thing we need. Step three, stop subsidising the expansion of the fossil fuel export industry, which actually uses so many fossil fuels. Like the gas export industry is the largest user of gas in Australia, and that's why it's simultaneously true that what Andrew said about us leading the world on solar and wind is true, and we're one of the highest emission countries in the world is true, because despite all the progress we're making with you putting a solar panel on your roof, every time we open up a new gas field and export more gas, our emissions go through the roof. So stop subsidising bad things, stop building bad things, stop exploring for bad things, and then start putting that effort into encouraging good things. We'll have it sorted in 10 years.
The headwinds are primarily from the Commonwealth Government, which is really out of touch with what the states are doing. Two Liberal states, New South Wales and South Australia, are right at the forefront of um, the transition within Australia. I think they've lost uh, patience with their own colleagues in Canberra. So South Australia is by far the leading jurisdiction in Australia or the world for per capita solar and wind. New South... And it, and it shows, There's, you know, when, when you get a week where the average solar wind fraction is 90%, which is quite common, and a day where it's 100% solar and wind, and this will just continue, and it's supported by both sides of politics. It's become a, not a politi political issue. New South Wales has got ambitious plans, and they, they put a bill through their parliament that had the, uh, the, the government and the Labor Party and the Greens all signed on and voted for it. So it is possible to actually to depoliticise this and just treat it as a problem. Let's just get it done. So your vote, your, your vote does matter, but I'd like to throw it back onto you. you. You will be all voting next week. That probably doesn't matter very much for energy, but it matters a lot in May who you vote for. But it also matters what you do in your private expenditure. The number one thing you need to get rid of is your gas system if you've got one. Go for, off, um, go for electric heat pump, water heating, electric heat pump, um, uh, space heating and cooling, and electric cooking. Then go and put on five or 10 kilowatts of solar on your roof, and as soon as you can, get an electric car. Now, you're being subversive when you do this. You're attacking the fossil fuel industry, which is at the heart of our gas-led recovery. So go for it. While we have these experts on stage with us, I wanted to run through a couple of the other sort of big um, issues that people talk about, the big areas of potential development. Um, do you think that uh, Australia could easily um, introduce sort of green steel, as in instead of, instead of sending all the iron ore overseas, uh, what's the potential for that? as a new industry in Australia. The second one is EVs. Do you think Australia could make vehicles in Australia? Andrew, uh, you first, yeah. Okay, so green steel is difficult um, and it's at the back end of the queue. 80% of the emissions reductions come from solar and wind getting rid of coal and gas out of electricity, electric vehicles getting rid of oil out of transport, and gas getting, uh, and um, electric furnaces and heat pumps getting gas out of heating. That's the first 80%. Go very fast there, individual decisions and national decisions and state decisions, and then that buys us a bit of time to do the more difficult things, which is the chemical industry, these, the metals industry, and agriculture, which is the last 20% of uh, Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. The technology is not there yet, but if we push hard, it will be ready in 12 years when we've done the easy 80%, and we start to get into that last, more difficult 20%. Uh, Richard, you've written about the car industry in Australia a lot. What's your feeling about... Um, I, I mean, we still produce... We produce trucks in Australia. Mm. Do you think it's possible for an economy to re-gear to the extent that you could actually start an industry, um, you know, w unfortunately, more or less from scratch now? Um, what do you think? Oh, well, of course we can. A, we've done it before. Like, we didn't have a car industry until we had a car industry. Um, we, we, and, and we pushed one out the door. Let's, let's be clear, it wasn't an accident the car industry left. 
Just like energy ministers' decisions matters, so did Treasury's decisions uh, matter when, uh, when the Abbott government literally goaded the car industry into leaving. So getting it to come back as it was is difficult, but getting it to come back, especially in part, in manufacture of key components, of course we can. I mean, here we are sitting in South Australia where we're very happy to spend billions of dollars saying we can build brand new submarines from scratch. Oh, but gee, a car would be a bit tricky. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to talk on the on the green steel. Uh, I do think it's you know ten years away, but it's worth pursuing that. And there's also all of our um, the precious metals and minerals that go into the batteries. The, all of the mining that we do are associated with that. In fact, it surprises me that the mining sector doesn't focus more on, on the opportunity that is in mining rather than the coal mining, which is you know, a declining opportunity. There's a big opportunity in those, those minerals for, for this advanced technology age and the opportunity to do more of the processing, downstream processing in Australia, rather than shipping the raw ore off overseas. And that's a five, 10-year plan that we invest in now. And some of the big end of town are yeah. So Fortescue Future Industries and the like are, are, are taking this with both opportunity with both hands and, and you know, charting a path for themselves and for Australia. Well, it's amazing to think that they've budgeted, or they haven't budgeted, but they're talking about spending $90 billion on, on submarines for 2045, or mm. they, they don't even know. But, um, but yet, 10 years off seems to be too hard for them to contemplate. It's, it's pretty, um, it's pretty dispiriting sometimes, but um, I mean, I want to talk about electric vehicles again because, like, if ideally with petrol prices going up above two dollars twenty, uh, everyone suddenly is going to want to buy them. Uh, we're going to have uh, capacity limits, though, as in there aren't, there literally aren't enough electric vehicles being shipped to Australia at the moment for everyone to, to buy them. Do you think there's, how do you see that sort of market playing out in the next couple of years? I think it'll just, it will just play out. I mean, we have to, we have to actually um, change the, the, the language and the conversation around it. At the moment, historically, it's been a negative connotation around electric vehicles. So if we actually reset that conversation and we start talking positively about it, uh, and open and, and remove these reservations about um, range anxiety and the like. I mean, we've had it now for 10 years. We had one fun experience where we were doing what we thought was going to be a, a 200 kilometer range trip and we'd get back to town with enough in the tank, um, but it was a much hillier road than we expected. And we were about halfway around and we were like, we're really not going to make it back on this. But you open up your app and you find out who nearby will offer you charging. And it was a little roadhouse, literally in the middle of nowhere, between, am I going to get this right, Armadale and the coast. Uh, we pulled in, and they had a little campground out the back. They accommodated people, and the bar at the front. And they said, yep, go on, plug in, Chancy. out the back, free. I haven't told you that. Ten, over 10,000 kilometres so far, I've only spent $70 in charging the car. The rest of it's off my roof. <laughs> and I haven't, one of the great joys that you don't know is I haven't been to a petrol station in a year. Yeah. Can I tell you that disgusting place is petrol stations? <laughs> in Victoria, 
I mean, just to put a spoke in the wheels for a moment, if we all bought electric vehicles in Victoria, we'd be producing, a lot of us would also be pulling a lot of power from the grid, which is driven by coal. Um, but uh, recently they've announced a big offshore wind target in Victoria. Um, Andrew, what, what's your sense of the future of offshore wind? Offshore wind is going to be a truly enormous industry. It'll be quite small in Australia because we have lots of onshore wind and solar. But think about some really important countries that are north. They're at 50 degrees latitude and further. And these are all of northern Europe. And for them, they've got terawatts, tens of terawatts of capacity for offshore wind in the North Sea. That's where they're going to get their energy to get rid of Russian gas, oil and coal. Think about Japan. We've just published a study looking at Japan. Japan's got 14 times more solar and wind potential than needed to get to 100% renewable electricity. Um, same for Korea, the Philippines, Taiwan, all of those other Northeast Asian countries. Think about Northeast United States. They also have an awesome offshore uh, wind resource which can supplement the um, onshore wind and the miserable solar up in the Northeast. So offshore wind is for the northern latitudes that don't have solar. For the other seven billion of us, we've got solar. So uh, we did another study of Indonesia, a very crowded country. Where are they going to put 10 billion solar panels, which is what they need to get to 100% renewables? It turns out that they have enough area floating on their calm inland sea between the main islands, which never sees winds over 15 metres a second, never sees waves over 4 metres. They've got enough space there to power the entire world. So Indonesia has, and also uh, in the Gulf of Thailand similarly, have arbitrarily large areas of sea uh, in order to provide all of the energy, not just electricity, that they will ever need. Uh, Richard, you had something to add. Yeah. Uh, look, just in terms of people worrying that you know, your electric car runs on coal, forget it. Um, Australia hasn't built a coal-fired power station for 15 years. But demand for electricity has been growing steadily. So literally none of the new electric cars that have come onto the road have, have required a new coal-fired power station to be built. Right? They're there, they're, they break down on hot days, they were, in, they were built before colour television. They'll go soon. Okay? It's only subsidies and government effort that's keeping them going. They'll go soon. So don't worry about that. But in terms of electric cars, so put up your hand if you've ever been in an electric car. Okay, put them down. Put up your hand if you've ever been in an electric bus. Oh, okay, I'm surprised. Here in Adelaide? Right, well, good on you, because the number of electric buses on the road in Australia is embarrassingly small. And this is a simple technology that our representatives at your next state election, if they wanted to prioritise these things, now, here's a trick question. Has anyone here ever heard an electric bus? <laughs> All right. in, in cities, they're fantastic. They don't stink. They're perfectly quiet. They don't annoy people that live next to bus stops. All right. and, and like Andrew said at the beginning, the benefits of this electrification are so much more than climate change and energy security. They're clean air in our cities. They're peace and quiet in our cities. And they are just small, cheap policy decisions away. 
Very true. I'm going to um, open up for questions in a minute, um, but I just wanted to talk about one other aspect that, that is often kind of used as a bugbear by, uh, you know, by the fossil fuel industry and by various politicians, uh, which seems to scare a lot of Australians, particularly in, um, like, mining regions, resources regions. Uh, but it's, it's by implication used to scare the rest of Australia, which is that uh, if we lose these industries like gas and coal, who's going to, you know, not power the economy, but where all that money from exports, what, what replaces that? You know, this is, this is a genuine, this is a major fear through, uh, through sort of rust belt seats, through Western Australia through Queensland. What do you? Uh, how do you counter that sort of um, fear campaign? <laughs> um, well, very slowly, because the, the the amount of money that goes into this bullshit is almost impossible to comprehend. Um, imagine I was in the business of making and exporting these chairs, and I was getting billions of dollars a year in exporting these chairs. Is that my billions or yours? Mine. Get stuff. These are my chairs. I exported them. So the idea that Australia gets Australia's revenue from selling our oil and gas to Japan, Korea, China, anywhere is bizarre. The companies that sell it get their revenue <laughs> from selling our oil and gas and coal to those countries, and we know they pay bugger all tax. So, and this is top secret, it's, it's hidden in something called the Commonwealth Budget. Um, so, so, yeah, so we're kind of told that the revenue from all of our fossil fuel exports, and the revenue is always expressed as total export revenues, is in some way analogous to money the Commonwealth Government spends on health and education. And these two things have literally nothing to do with each other. So the, 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 the fact that a large amount of revenue for selling fossil fuels is counted in our national accounts is unrelated to the revenue our Commonwealth government gets from those fossil fuels. You know, Chevron pays zero tax. All right, so, uh, so there's that. And then there's the job stuff, you know, that where will everyone work? Well, let's be clear, there's about 20,000 people work in the oil and gas industry. There's about 40,000 people work in the coal industry, and there's 100,000 people work at McDonald's. There are 25 million people in Australia, and almost none of them, less than 1%, work in oil, gas, and coal. Now, them losing their jobs is bad and scary, and we should do, some, we should do more to help them than we help the car workers in Adelaide. Right? Let's be crystal clear, we should not be as heartless to unemployed coal workers as we were to people who lost their, their jobs in the car industry. We shouldn't be as heartless as we were to all the people that lost their jobs in the textiles industry. We shouldn't be as heartless as we were to all the people that lost their jobs when Tony Abbott sacked 13,000 public servants. We've been sacking people and ruining their lives for decades, and we shouldn't be nasty when people lose their jobs in coal regions. But to suspect, to suggest that the, where will everyone work, without oil and coal and gas, well, 99.5% of Australians are already doing pretty well. So true. <laughs>
Um, and so I can add to that, like in the academic sector, the university sector, there were 40,000 jobs yeah. lost over the last two years. By and design. By design. By design. Yeah. And just to be clear, <laughs> being a, a professor and academic, it wasn't. It was, it was felt more broadly across the administrative staff than it was around the academic staff. So it wasn't your boffins in their offices who were losing their jobs. It was all the support staff, the technical support staff, the administrative support staff, that we, they, they felt it harder than the academics did. Yeah. I could just add one other thing. Um, the number of ele federal electorates that have a gas mine or a coal mine or an oil mine, it's a handful. All the other electorates have a, a very clear economic benefit from getting rid of these horrible industries. It's just a very small number of electorates that are somehow being the tail that's wagging this big dog. Yeah. Does anyone have questions? There's a roving mic. There we go. We're sorted. Um, uh, can I just say, um, questions rather than comments would be greatly appreciated. Yeah. Question. Um, about the recycling um, opportunities that renewables offer. Recycling is hugely energy consuming. We've got everything in Australia to actually feed the electrons into that. So there's a massive cradle to cradle opportunities to recycle what is on our top of the roofs, which will be a design end of life in 20-ish sort of years. So I'd like some comment about that opportunity. Um, can I start before Andrew does, because I know his answer already. <laughs> um, so I think your question, th there is certainly a recycling opportunity in Australia, and if we could power it by renewable energy, that would be terrific. And that's plastics, paper, cardboard. Right now, we could, we could be, in the next 10 years, huge opportunity to, to manage our own waste stream. Um, I'll let Andrew answer. I agree with what Andrew says about solar. Over you go. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I did the sums. It's, a, it's about half a page of very simple calculations. Let's assume that Australia is entirely solar powered. We need about um, 100 square metres of solar panel per person to displace all of the oil, gas and coal, not just for electricity, but also transport, heating, the chemical industry, the mining industry, everything else put together. 100 square metres of panel per person, assuming no hydro, no wind, nothing else, just solar. And the uh, lifetime is about 25 years, so that's four square metres of panel has to be recycled every year per person. Now that's this big. And that adds about 50% to the glass waste stream, because we already have a lot of glass recycling from buildings and automobiles, etc. And it adds uh, an imperceptible amount to any other waste stream. So recycling is something you have to do, but it is no big deal, even when we have 100% renewables in our economy. It's just something we just, just do. One, can I make one, one more comment? And that is that we have literally, just in the last couple of months, come up with a national steward system for lead-acid batteries. Right? We've been dealing with lead-acid battery waste for, and very efficiently, actually. The industry itself has done that, has looked after it, but we've you know, come up with a, a, a national system for it now. I actually think that it, it's, it's, not, it's a problem that we are aware of, that we take seriously, but we understand the scope of it, and it's not. It's, it's, there's, no in, there's nothing to stop us going ahead at this point. Thank you. Over here. Hello, thank you. Um, I'd really be interested on some of that 
just a little bit on that 20%, that's hard. I'm a farmer and so the electric vehicles on property or for long haul, line haul, movement of goods and food, um, I'd like to know what we can do to accelerate that shift and perhaps a little bit about where the hydrogen industry is for, for those options at the moment. Okay, so um, the chemical symbol for hydrogen is H, and that actually stands for hype. So um, most of what you hear about hydrogen is complete moonshine. Hydrogen atoms are absolutely necessary if you want to make ammonia or plastics or um, use hydrogen to reduce iron oxide to make green steel. Hydrogen is a terrible way to um, heat your house or power your vehicle or store energy. So that's not what hydrogen is being used for now, and it won't be because it's so uneconomic. However, there are a number of sectors for which hydrogen will actually be important. One of them is long-distance um, aircraft. Uh, we can't run more than a thousand kilometres or so using batteries under current battery technology. So we're going to have to probably make synthetic kerosene, that's C12H20 or something like that. So a lot of carbon, a lot of hydrogen. Um, very remote vehicles, um, same deal. We'll have to have maybe synthetic methanol or methane or something like that to run those vehicles. Um, and they're definitely in the hard sector. But as I say again, 80% of it is really low-hanging fruit. Go out and put five kilowatts or 10 kilowatts on your roof. Go out and get rid of all the gas from your house and go out and get your electric vehicle. And that's basically what you need to do to get to 80% emissions reductions. Thank you. Thank you all so much for being here today. Um, my name is Misha. I'm a researcher. I work on coastal wetland conservation and the biodiversity that depends on that. And um, working both here throughout the region and globally, we have seen some really um, disheartening examples of where expansion of things like solar and wind has had some really negative impacts on biodiversity. So I'm 100% um, behind this transition. I think most of us here are. But I'm just curious your thoughts on how um, electrification experts such as yourselves can work together with ecologists and conservation scientists to make sure that the way this is unrolled is sensitive to biodiversity. And one of the examples you gave, actually, those wind farms in northern Europe is a good example of where we've seen some horrible impacts on things like seabirds. So, thank you. Thanks. Good question. Um, so, it's with solar. If you put it on rooftops, it's you know not too big a problem. But when you start to put it out at on mass in the field, it becomes an issue. Uh, and I do know that the proposal uh, for the Sun Cable plant, which is going to plan for the Northern Territories with a cable through to Singapore. Uh, they are, I've been in conversation with them, they're taking the uh, ecological aspect of it and the respect for land aspect of it very seriously and the marine because there's a marine cable that's going to go through and it'll run hot and it'll change the local environment. They're actually looking very seriously at that. I believe that the ecologists that they've um, engaged is South Australian based. <laughs> so I know, but, but there's, there's a compromise, right? I mean, there's, and I don't, I, I think it'll be a best efforts outcome, as with all of these things, to come, to come up with the best outcome that delivers the clean energy, which has its own environmental benefit, um, with the, the, the downside, the ecological downside. And it, I think that, there, I mean, there will be some ecological downside, there just is because there is a disruption. 
Can I just can I just add to that? I mean, look, it's a really important issue, and I think there's a simple solution: don't build good things in the wrong places. Right? This is not beyond our wit. Uh, and again, it's why we have to be careful. Again, don't get me wrong. Go put a solar panel on your roof if you can afford to. But this is why we can't kind of trust the market to fix all of our problems. We're, you know, we're still building new property developments in the last remaining koala habitats in New South Wales. Right? This is not because of some lack of evidence, it's because it's quite profitable to do it. Right? And, and profit for the developer is far more important than the extinction of the koala to the decision makers. So don't build them in bad places, build them in good places, but again, the definition of good and bad is ours through policy and governance and regulation, not, oh, isn't this developer a nice person that's trying to save the uh, climate, so because they want to make a lot of money selling renewable energy, let's let them build it in the wrong place. We, of course we have to be sensitive to where. Thank you. Hi, this is a bit of a follow-on, I guess, from that. I know at the moment Venture Minerals in um, Tasmania uh, wanting to knock down a bunch of the Tarkina forests with an excuse that we need those rare metals and rare earths for renewables. Um, are there any counter-arguments to that? Could we be already producing them from mines that already exist? Could we already be somehow recycling them out of the products that are around? Just interested in, is that, a, is that really a true thing that's required or are they using that as their greenwash excuse. Look, always, be, always be careful of people dressing up their self-interest as national interest. <laughs> All right? And that's the stock and trade of the resources industry in Australia. You have to let me build this mine here or your kids won't have a job. You have to let me build the mine here or there'll be no money for your schools. You have to let me build the mine here or you'll have climate change. Right? It's the same script, just with a different punchline. So, uh, yeah, as with where we build wind farms, where we build mines, where we build anything that's destructive, it's up to us to set up a regime where we can protect the things we want to protect. New South Wales doesn't care about koalas, so they're getting more houses. Whether Tasmania cares about the Tarkine or would prefer some more revenue for a tin miner is a democratic question for the Tasmanians, but there's no shortage of tin. I'm interested in the socio-economic impediments to bringing everyone with us on this solar journey. As real estate prices have rocketed, skyrocketed throughout capitals of Australia, many people are either forced into long-term rentals in units or into buying units where there's no potential for installing solar or any other form that I can see. Would you like to comment on how we can bring these people with us on the journey, please? Great question. So South Australia has more solar rooftops and more solar installed in the field than anywhere else in the world. Um, and as a result, you have the lowest cost of energy in Australia. So it do, there is a flow through. It's not a direct flow through, but there's a flow through. It, I've seen a number of attempts to try to deliver a solution um, for solar for, for low-income households, solar for rentals. It's, 
it hits all sorts of hurdles. It's actually, and I haven't, I, I don't have a direct answer for how we can. There's a simple business model that opens up that opportunity. Other than more renewables leads to lower cost of energy for everybody. Richard. Uh, look, it's a really important question, and I'd be very nervous about any trickle-down energy policy, where if enough people who can afford to put solar panels on their roof do that, that will look after tenants and renters. I think that's dangerous and, in the long run, um, harmful and inequitable. Um, once upon a time, it was your state government that built every coal-fired power station in South Australia. It was your state government that built all the transmission lines. It was your state government that owned the retail distribution network. It's not beyond our wit for our state governments to build a lot of solar itself, uh, to install a lot of transmission itself. But it's, I mean, this is the first crisis in history. Climate change is the first crisis in history where we know exactly what we want, we know exactly what the deadline is, and we think if we sit back and let the market fix it, hopefully it'll get delivered in time and fairly. So, yeah, I think we have to be very concerned about how to make sure that we don't wind up with 50% uh, of the population profitably selling uh, solar off their roof and 50% of people living in rented or, or units with no roof uh, buying it. We can fix, these, are, these aren't problems now. Please don't feel guilty, go stick one on your roof. Right? But we're gonna have to address these bigger picture problems as we get closer to the, uh, to the enormous rollout that we've been talking about today. It's not beyond our wit, but we shouldn't just sit back and hope. Just got time for one more question, unfortunately. I know that we'd have a dozens more, but we've, I'm, I'm getting the wind up. But there's one more up here. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you think there's any place for nuclear energy in the future of Australia or the world, and what the, what the downsides <laughs> yeah. and the risks we've of the generation of nuclear energy. We've got 30 seconds to deal with this question. So, you know. <laughs> Thank you. That's a good question. Of course, Everyone we needed to get to um, it eventually. But um, maybe we could give each of you, a, you know, a minute on this one because it's obviously a pretty big issue in South Australia but thanks for raising it. Okay so I'm all in favour of nuclear. The reactor I'm in favour of is 150 kilometres up there. Um, according to the World Nuclear Association which is the club of nuclear nations and companies, the amount of global nuclear energy delivered last year was less than 10 years ago. The solar and wind industry has grown by a factor of 50 or something in the last 10 years. The reason is nuclear is wildly uneconomic compared with solar and wind. It lost the race. And let's not mention uh, accidents, nuclear weapons, spin-offs, um, waste disposal. Let's not mention the possibility that if somebody invades you, they have the very own nuclear bomb sitting on your territory. Nuclear has simply failed in the marketplace. That's all there is to it, really. Renata? It's kind of hard to follow that. Um, <laughs> so there, there are, internationally there are proponents for what they call small modular reactors. And that is, uh, you know, the reason that solar has won is that it's, it's the same devices in your, your watch as is in the field. It's scalable and it's cheap. You just, it gets cheaper as you make it bigger. Um, they're trying to reverse engineer nuclear and take it back to a small modular you know, concept. We can have one in our garage. The, the, there is no commercially available model yet, and it, I don't think there will ever be commercial. It'll be operational. 
but it will not be competitive. There might be parts of the world that need it, but it won't be here. We have enough renewable energy resources to see us through. Richard, anything um, to add? So if we take the science of climate, serious, climate change seriously, which I do, I think we've already changed the climate, uh, what does the science tell us? It says we need to act quickly. Is building nuclear power station in Australia quick? No. Is it cheap? No. Is there a stable waste solution for it? No. Can you get private sector insurance for it? No. Is it a great distraction from getting on with all the shit we need to do? Yes. All right, nuclear in Australia, like carbon capture and storage, is just, it's room filler. Like, it's just to suck the oxygen out of a, so, a focused concentration on the simple technologies in front of us and what we simply need to do to get on with it. If you want to agree in principle and do nothing, talk about nuclear or carbon capture and storage. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for, but um, thank you. You've been a great audience. They were great questions. And um, uh, enjoy the festival, and please thank our guests, Renata Egan, Andrew Blakers, and Richard Dennis. I'm Nick Fike. Thank you.